Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. All right, we are in Acts chapter 18. Uh, someone asked me, or I think we're in 19 actually. Yeah, we're in 19. Some of you are like, let's not go backwards, Daniel. This has taken long enough. Let's go forward. Uh, we're in Acts 19. Someone asked me this morning how long we're going to go through the book of Acts. We're going to go till we're done. Anybody know how many chapters there are in the book of Acts? 28. And so as I have it scripted or as I've studied through it, um, I think we're going to finish uh, the first Sunday in August of this year. Of this year. Yes. So August 6th, I believe, will be the last message in this series. Um, you're going to find some interesting things as we get to this last phase of the book of Acts. Um, well, let's look at the purpose. The purpose of the book of Acts is this. It tells us how God directs the expansion of his kingdom throughout the world through a spirit-empowered church, despite these internal obstacles and external opposition. So what we find in the last number of chapters is really uh, the main characters are Paul and these groups of pastors and missionaries leading the expansion of the kingdom of God all throughout the region. And as they go through the region and the kingdom of God expands, there's all types of opposition. And some of it is opposition we might not ever face in our life. Some of it can be a metaphor or a type of opposition we might face. And so as we go through these last few chapters, um, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of moving parts. And so today's uh, message will be on riots, revival, and a re- revolution, all in Acts chapter 19. We are in Paul's missionary journey, and this is the third of his missionary journeys. As we have discussed, Paul's passion was building disciples, not just gaining converts. It was an idea that he had to Uh, strengthen people as they heard the gospel, as they became followers of Jesus Christ, not just to leave them in that moment, but then after they received Jesus Christ to help them become disciples, he was very passionate about putting things in place, putting people in place to make sure people grew in their faith. And so that's what we're going to see now. Let's begin in verse number eight. Verse eight says this, and he entered the synagogue and for how long? Three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom. But, everyone say but. But when some became stubborn, let's go ahead and define that word stubborn, because I don't know if anybody really knows what that means in this room. Okay, we're good, we know. Don't point at anyone. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. Let's just quickly help us understand the way is our faith. It's the way that Christians were living out their life. This is a commonly used word historically at this time just to describe. They didn't have the word Christianity necessarily. Um, and this was a revolution, uh, uh, relatively, I should say, new way of living their life. The church had just been established formally in the book of Acts. And so we're talking just a few years later. This is how they describe people that were following the teachings 
of Paul and Peter and of these others on, on what it looked like to follow Jesus. This was the way, the way you're supposed to live. So when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he, being Paul, he withdrew from them, took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for how long? Two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, follow the logic with me. In verse 9, he says he withdrew them, the people in the congregation. He took the disciples with them. He reasoned with them daily in the hall. By the end of verse 10, it says that the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord between both the Jews and the Greeks. So he left with the disciples there after, after the majority of the people were being stubborn and they were become resistant and they didn't quite understand or they were just outright opposed to it. Paul took those disciples, started teaching them in the halls of Tyrannus, and then all of a sudden, this is the result in verse 10, all of Asia. Now Luke is using um, hyperbole. He's using uh, eloquent language to say, the word of God spread, but Paul's just teaching a small group. It leads us to our first point by way of introduction. Spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ is a team sport. When you think about Paul uh, and his conversion, and you think about all the people that had to be connected with Paul over the course of his life that we have exposure to in the, script, in the scriptures. After Paul comes to Jesus, God tells Ananias, there's a guy named Saul. I need you to go with him and, uh, and be with him. Ananias questions God and said, are you sure that's the same Saul? Uh, I know a Saul. Is it the same Saul? Is it the same Saul that's persecuting us? Is it the same Saul that breathes threatenings against us? God says, yes, that's the same Saul. And I said, okay, good. I was just checking. Um, later, Barnabas gets connected with Saul. He becomes this uh, volatile pitcher, um, a polarizing pitcher, because he, they knew what he once was. Now he's a Christian. Now he's following Jesus. He needed some people to disciple him. Barnabas comes alongside him, and for a period of time, Barnabas, Barnabas is the one. Paul ends up meeting T uh, Timothy. Paul ends up meeting uh, Silas, ends up meeting John Mark. In the last uh, scriptures that we looked at right before Easter, Paul uh, meets uh, Aquila and Priscilla, right? Aquila and Priscilla hear Apollos preaching a message. They think, my goodness, he's very good. He's eloquent, but he's missing a little part. Apol uh, Priscilla and Aquila disciple Apollos. Now Apollos is now bringing a lot of people to Jesus. All of, this, all of these relationships point us to this fact that spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ is a team sport. What he could do was not reach the entire region but himself, but what he could do was this, was to equip Christians for the work of the ministry. And that's the goal of our church, that's the goal of ministry, that's the goal of our faith, is that it is a team sport that all of us gets involved with the gifts that we have to reach more people for Jesus. That's what it's all about. Um, I feel like I should review that because there was no amens, there was no enthusiasm on that. Um, it's a team sport. Um, I want to go back to last Sunday when we had uh, the baptisms, and I mentioned briefly while we were baptizing, but it's such a beautiful picture of how this works. Uh, two years ago, uh, Pepper and Mitch invite someone to our picnic. 
Mike comes to our picnic. He starts coming to Wednesday night Bible study, starts coming to church on Sunday and says, my goodness, I need a savior. Gets saved and he gets baptized. Mike starts living out his faith. Meets a guy named Taylor at where they're living. And as I understand what ends up happening, Taylor, Taylor has a good work ethic, needs a job. Mike works at a restaurant. And Mike said, oh, I, maybe I can help you find a job. Helps him find a job. Taylor ends up watching our services for the most part online with his parents. Comes to church a few times. And starts hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he and his parents end up saying, my goodness, we need a savior. Ends up coming to Jesus, ends up getting baptized. All because someone went out of their way to invite someone to a picnic. Do you see how this works? This is a team sport. Now, I am happy to serve as pastor. I'm happy to live out my life uh, in such a way that honors and pleases God to my, the very best of my ability. And it's an honor and joy for me to open scriptures uh, and to meet in people's homes and to show them what it means to, believe, to be Jesus. But I'm telling you, this is a team sport that we all get to participate in. This is not a spectator sport. Sundays may feel like that, but our faith, one of our core values as a church is that our faith would live and breathe outside of Sundays. In fact, if we don't ever take God home with us from church on Sundays, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And we have to live and breathe our faith uh, between Sundays. And so as we get started and we think, okay, so Paul ends up teaching. By the way, when he taught... Um, most historical writings that were written at the same time as the Bible, they're not inspired, but they're history books. Uh, they said that these types of um, uh, trainings and teachings that Paul did went from 11 to 4, usually, during the day. That was during the rest portion of the day. Most uh, workers would get up really, really early uh, as soon as it was light out and began working. And from 11 to 4, it was the hottest part of the day. And so much of the physical labor would cease during that time. They would go to the synagogue. Paul also would be working during that time. What did Paul do? What was his job? He was a tent maker. More accurately, he worked with leather and pieces of, of, of leather and constructed items for people. And so he would also rest between that time. He would teach from 11 to 4 daily for this extended period of time in Ephesus, meaning hundreds of hours of teaching investing into this city for two hours. Uh, let's keep reading what happens. Verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had been touched, that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. I don't know how that works. I'm going to be honest. There's not a lot of information about this. These were unusual miracles. We don't know how it worked other than the same way uh, there's record. You remember in Acts, um, probably Acts 4 or Acts 5, there was people where the shadow of Peter was enough for them to be healed. You remember in the Gospels that there's the woman that pursues Jesus and touches just the hem of her, his garment ends up being healed. I don't know how it happens, but this is the record from Luke. The problem is this. When it became uh, evident that that happened, it set up a pattern for other people to emulate that type of healing. So superstitious practice of magic and sorcery was prevalent in Ephesus. 
And so it shouldn't be a surprise that some took this superstitious view of miracles uh, that done through Paul, and now we're trying to emulate that other ways. We're going to read a little bit more about that. Uh, God seems to like doing things in new and different ways. So what does that mean for us today? Well, that's why I carry a handkerchief while I preach. That's not the takeaway. Um, It means this. God can do whatever he wants to do. Our obligation as ministers, as pastors, as Christians, is to follow what God has clearly outlaid for us already in terms of the way our faith and our practice should work. Now, God can choose to use extraordinary events to speak to us. God can use extraordinary um, situations to, to intervene on our life. However, we should only be pursuing that which we have a biblical pattern for, as I see it. It does say that Paul did not use these miracles, but that God worked through them by the hands of Paul, which is interesting. So this is what happens. Uh, People see these handkerchiefs and they thought, my goodness, what if we could do that? What if we could capitalize on it? That's what happens next. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them and said, Who dis? <laughs> Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. But who are you? Verse 16, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, this is a humorous account of a very serious principle. These Jewish exorcists failed because they had no personal relationship with Jesus. They only knew that Jesus was the God of Paul. There was something to leverage. There was power. There was influence. And they sought to Uh, yeah, they sought to take advantage of that and quickly found out that they were in no position to do so. It leads to a larger principle in your notes. There are many people, churchgoers included, who know about Jesus but don't know Jesus. How many of you would describe yourself as a churchgoer? That's all of you guys. You're, You're in church today, so you are a churchgoer. But there's a big difference between knowing about who Jesus is and knowing who Jesus is. So these itinerant Jewish exorcists, the Bible says, knew about Jesus's power, knew about what Paul could do, and in in knowing about Jesus sought to gain the benefit of that relationship without ever having a relationship on their own. And might I say that can happen with churchgoers, that just because we attend a service on a weekend, that we feel like we will get the benefits of a relationship having never actually been in a relationship with Jesus. And you might get some overflow benefits. You might get an emotional feeling on the weekend or on Sunday when you're a part of our service, but to have a relationship with Jesus is something far more meaningful. There's a price in pretending here. 
And if you only know Jesus from an account of someone else, let me encourage you to find out who Jesus is on your own, having a relationship with him. The seven sons of Sceva had no real relationship with them. They had no spiritual power against the evil spirit, and they found quickly the price they had to pay. The price for pretending is pretty severe. I don't know if you caught this. This was about six years ago. Um, the Tampa police in Florida were holding a press conference, as police departments will do. And they're holding this press conference, and they're giving an update on a case. And to the left of the, or right of the screen, on this side, um, left, sorry, um, there was a woman who was translating. And I don't know translating, so I'm not going to pretend. But she was pretending. She got a job with the Tampa police as a translator, having no understanding of sign language. And so this video now, nothing's private, right? Everything's on the internet. So people are watching this video, and she's doing her thing. And quote, unquote, like the American Sign Language uh, organizations came out and they said, this is tantamount to gibberish. <laughs> I don't know how she got the job, but she just pretended to do all of this. I think sometimes with our faith, if we, if we pretend to go through the motions and then other people observe that type of behavior or they see that type of life or even in your family and there's this, uh, there's this dual life thing that you're living where on Sundays it looks this way, but on Friday nights it looks this way. On Sundays it looks this way, but Tuesdays at work it looks this way. On Sundays it looks this way, but Saturday morning it looks this way. We're living lives of gibberish. You know, you know what the, the ancient Greeks used to use when they described that kind of person? They'd call them actors. We went to a play last night, Libby and I did, and it was awesome. It was a Shakespeare play. It was hilarious. Very well done. But they're acting. They're playing a part. The ancient Greeks used to use that to describe someone who would live one way in some days and live another way on other days. We get the word hypocrite from their word hypocritus, actor. It's a dangerous thing to act. And so for us, if we, if we simply rely on others and their knowledge about Jesus, but we don't actually pursue Jesus for ourselves, we put ourselves in a very dangerous position. We continue, verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Verse 18. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of them all. And they counted the value of them and counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And the result, so the, excuse me, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's just talk contextually about Ephesus and why this is such a significant uh, movement uh, in Ephesus right now. Ephesus was a stronghold of the evil one. Many evil things, both superstitious and outright satanic, were practiced. And so they would have these books containing formulas for sorcery and other ungodly and really forbidden arts were plentiful in that city. 
And so the incidents with the sons of Sceba impacted the people with the reality of this demonic realm, and it made them fear the Lord. And as a result, the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified because Jesus' name ended up superseding any of these demonic and sorcerous arts that they were worshiping with. So the incidents also prompted Christians to renounce any former connection to the demonic. They ended up donating all their, not donating, they brought all their books and scrolls full of these magic charms and incantations, and they brought them together in order to uh, rid themselves of these influences. Um, And it said it's worth how much? 50,000 pieces of silver. If you do the what it's relative to now, it's somewhere between one and five million dollars worth of goods. 50,000 pieces of silver. Again, it leads us to a larger thought for us today, and that is this. When God delivers us from a temptation, it's our responsibility to be wise and rid our life from those same temptations. Now, it's impossible to completely avoid temptation. We have enough temptation going on in our mind, though, without going after and pursuing other forms of temptation. So think about it. Is there any habit, practice that, you, that, that, gets, that gets in your mind and ends up defiling your soul? Uh, Martin Luther said this about temptation. Uh, you cannot stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making nests in your hair. Right? So, so when, when you think about temptations, it's not about ridding all of the temptation. It's about making sure that they don't nest in your area. And if you can identify places in your life that you are easily tempted to walk away from your faith, you can begin identifying places where you can remove those influences so that they don't have an easy path to your heart. So these Christians in Ephesus thought, my goodness, this leads to something Uh, that we don't want to have a part in. We had a part in it. We used to worship to Diana, to Artemis at the temple. We used to take part in this, but now we're following Jesus. We want no part of this. They see it plainly displayed in their city with the events of the last few verses. So they end up saying, we're going to rid ourselves of these temptations. So they brought all of their books, all of their their scrolls containing all of these charms and said, I'm done with this. I'm not going to put myself. They still lived in Ephesus. They were still surrounded by Diana and Artemis worship, but they said, as for me and my house, right, we're going to rid ourselves from these temptations. Can I give you a couple of silly examples that will hopefully strike some thoughts in your mind? Um, it would be silly for anyone that struggles with pornography to program their homepage to go to a porn site. That's silly, isn't it? So the first thing that you do when you see the computer is to see, a, a, oh, I'm avoiding that. I'm going to click out of that. I'm going to change. Like, why would you put yourself in that position, right? And you say, well, yeah, that sounds silly. Um, it, would be, it would be unwise if you had a, um, an addiction to alcohol that devolves your behavior, it would be unwise for you to set up business meetings at bars in town. Right? That's just unwise. Um, so, so, So now that we've used two silly 
thoughts, I want you to think about what, what, is the, what is the temptation in your life that leads to distraction that then leads to sin? See, most of us are really good about avoiding the sin, right? We're really good about uh, taking the temptations that, that lead us directly to sin, but most of us will indulge the temptation that takes a left turn at distraction and then gets us to sin. So, so, so what is it in our life that tempts you with a distraction that ends up leading you down a path you never intended to go? You know, in all my, 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 my years of pastoring, no one ever walks up and says, I accidentally had an affair this week. It just happened. Everything was fine on Tuesday and Wednesday. I just had an affair. No, no, one, no one comes to my office and says, you know, I accidentally... Uh, gambled away all our savings at lunch. Monday was fine, and Tuesday I just did it all. I've never gambled before. It just happened. No, we, we, we make decisions in our lives to entertain these distractions, and if we're not careful, those distractions end up leading us down a road that we should never go. Is it a sin to set up a business meeting at a bar in town? Is it wise? If, if, if you struggle with that addiction? No. I mean, um, and, and we've got to stop saying, well, at least I'm not sinning, and start saying, gosh, what does it look like for us to live a wise life avoiding this kind of behavior? And if God has given you deliverance from temptation, well, now we have to be wise stewards of that deliverance and say, what does it look like to rid myself from the temptations of that sin now. So that's the beautiful thing that we see here. These were new believers. These were believers that were trying to follow Jesus, and they recognized there was a path that led them to evil, and so now we're going to remove the distraction, the temptation that could lead us down to that path. Now, what does that look like in your life? Here's the beautiful thing. You get to choose. You get to identify in your life the markers that you set that will avoid that type of temptation. Let's keep reading, verse 21. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Verse 22, and having spent time in, uh, having, I'm sorry, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he's guided by the Holy Spirit. He's determining his itinerary. He decides to travel through Macedonia, Achaia, then to Jerusalem, now to Rome. He sends Timothy and Erastus ahead, but he stays in Ephesus for a little bit while. And when the work was going so well, and when Paul was thinking about leaving Ephesus, another commotion arose. So let's look at it. Verse 23. At that time, there was no little disturbance. That means it was a big one, right? There was no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made sil silver... Sh man, this is difficult. Verse 24, one more time. <laughs> There's a lot of S's in there, okay? For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So what's Demetrius's deal? What does he do? He makes a living doing what? He makes these shrines, he makes these items that are sold at the temple shrines of Artemis. 
It's pretty interesting when you go to a foreign country and you go to the places uh, that, you know, that tourisms go. I remember, Darren, remember one time in Mexico City, we would go to the, the pyramids, right? And then outside the pyramids, which is used for worship, all of these people are selling their trinkets, they're selling their items, they're selling their things uh, to make money because of the tourism. Demetrius is doing something very similar. He made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, he did pretty well. Then he gathered together with the workmen, verse 25, in similar trades, and he says, look, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. In other words, we're making a lot of money here. Uh, Here's an artist's rendering of the temple to Diana. Now, uh, those of you who have your Bibles, you're going to notice that some of your Bibles say Artemis, and some of your Bibles are going to say Diana. We're talking about the same figure. Diana is the Roman word for this goddess. Artemis is the Greek word, the best I can understand. So we're going to call it Diana or Artemis, depending on how it is laid out in the scripture in front of you. But this was a tremendous temple uh, to Diana. It's regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, supported by 127 pillars, 60 feet high, great sculptures. It was lost to history until it was discovered in the late uh, 1860s, and its main altar was unearthed just in 1965. It was a major treasury and bank of the ancient world where merchants and kings and, uh, would make their deposits where their money could be kept safe until the, uh, under the protection of the deity. The temple of Diana in Ephesus was famous around the world. And so these trinkets that were made and idols from it must have been a substantial trade to master how immoral, I'm sorry, no matter how immoral the worship of the sex goddess was. So you had Christians that were living in this culture that was dedicated to the tourism, to the worship, to the extravagance of Diana and the worship there. It was highly sexualized culture. Uh, Sex was a part of their worship. It was part of their trade. And so you had these people like Demetrius that would make these uh, shrines and trinkets and mementos and items in remembrance and worship of Diana. And this is how they profited from it. And now you had Christians who were struggling with it because when they lived in their former life, they might have got a statue of the temple. In their former life, becoming a Jesus, they might have got a replica of the statue and put it in their home. And now they're following Jesus, right? Now they are pursuing the way, the way that Peter and Paul and all of them are teaching. They're pursuing Jesus with all their hearts. And now they go home and now they see that temple, that replica. And they're evaluating values in their life and saying, oh, how do I reconcile my faith with what I once was? And they're making these difficult decisions. So they end up, Demetrius ends up calling this meeting because trade for all of these trinkets started to plummet. Christians that were coming to Jesus, obviously, were no longer buying these items anymore. So we read in verse 26, he continues his speech. We're making a lot of money. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded And turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. He's saying, Paul is ruining business. We used to be be able to sell a lot more things. But now with the gospel of Jesus being proclaimed by Paul, there's a lot less merchandise for us to move. Verse 27. And there is danger 
not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, Diana, may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You see the problem economically for Demetrius and the other tradesmen? They were used to selling all these items to, uh, to, to fund their exploits, to fund their business. And because Diana was the principal god of worship in Ephesus, every person in that area would end up purchasing or contributing to the economics. Now they're all following Jesus. And because they're all following Jesus, they don't have a need for temporary gods that are made with hands. They recognize that there is a God who saves us, who doesn't desire us to have any graven images like that, who desires us not to have any idols like this. So they stop buying these items. And Demetrius says, if this continues, we're out of a job. We can't keep going this way. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged. They were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Christians living their life as Christians should impact society. This is how we endeavor to change society. That as we follow Jesus, we rid ourselves of temporary passions and values. And the next thing you know, our society is impacted. Not because we get more political necessary, necessarily. There's a time and a place for that. Not because we get more active on social media. There's really never a time or place for that. But simply because we start following Jesus. Demetrius was, he was so clever in how he spoke to the crowd. He first appealed to them both on the basis uh, on the financial self-interest. He says, you know, we need to do this together because we're all losing. And then he does so on the basis of civic pride. How, how dare Paul insert our insult and despise our great temple. Yet as we'll read in verse 37, here's the beautiful thing. Paul never spoke directly against Diana or Artemis. Never spoke against the specific God that they were worshiping. He was simply just all in on Jesus. And if you're all in on Jesus, he will start to impact your life in ways that will start to impact society. Let's read on and see what happens. Verse 29. So the city was filled with the confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of uh, the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Don't go there. You've been run out of enough cities. Don't do it. Verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Verse 33. Uh, how would you describe this so far? Like a mob, right? There's a frenzy. There's, it's, it's riots. There's riots. There. Uh, uh, I love that phrase. I think it was just in the last verse. Uh, they don't even know why they're there, but they're there and they're worked up into a frenzy. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. Alexander, motioning his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. 
But when he recognized that he was a Jew, but when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with a voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. Now, considering Rome's iron-fisted attitude towards civil disorder, things got out of hand pretty quick. Alexander wanted to make sure that the mob knew that the Jews did not approve of Paul either, but he accomplished nothing. They just got louder and louder and louder. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The noise must have been deafening. They're in the theater, specifically designed to amplify noise. And so the acoustics of the theater are excellent, even today. And at that time, even better because of the bronze and the clay sounding vessels placed throughout the auditorium. For two hours, they're shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the city clerk, Alexander couldn't do nothing. City clerk comes up, verse 35, and he tries to speak some sensible words. He says this, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stones that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. It's fascinating. Paul was able to whoop them up into a frenzy without ever denouncing specifically their God. Because the more you pursue Jewish, Jesus, the less everything becomes in our lives. Um, I worked for a bank for a little bit. You know, at a bank, they don't, they don't, um, they don't, they don't uh, teach you how to identify counterfeit money. You would think that'd be a pretty important thing for a teller. They don't teach it. They have you handle so much real money, and they literally tell this in training. The moment you come across counterfeit money, you'll just be able to tell. It'll feel different. I remember my first few months on a bank teller. I took in a deposit for one of the drive through restaurants in town. And I remember doing the deposit and doing it, and sure enough, no, that doesn't feel right. You start looking at it, and you start telling the paper's different. You put it under the light. You do the marker thing, and it recognizes. But you know the first, the first indication something's off? You just feel it because you've spent so much time with the real thing. This is what was happening in Ephesus. It wasn't that they were publicly decrying Diana and publicly saying, we're against this, and we're against this, and we're against this, and we're against this. Paul was simply saying, if we follow Jesus, everything else makes sense. And because they followed Jesus so passionately, when something didn't align with their faith, they just knew because they spent so much time with the real thing. You say, how am I going to be wise to the world? How am I going to be wise to understand how I should navigate the politics and the issues of our day? How am I going to be wise to navigate some of the sensitive things that come up? You spend so much time with the real thing, you'll know when something's off. It's interesting, this, this, this declaration, you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Very interesting statement. Verse 38, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen have been who have been uh, with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-counsels. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with writing today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed 
the assembly. It's beautiful that the, God uses the city clerk, the town clerk, to calm the mob, send them home. And again, God preserves his work and his people. By way of closing today, when followers of Jesus have true revivers, society will be impacted. It just will be. We've seen the riots. We've seen a revival happen among God's people. And now we're seeing this revolution because now their faith, because they're following Jesus so passionately, are impacting society. I want to end with the Lord's Prayer today. Matthew 6, verse 9 and 13. I'm using the New King James Version for the Lord's Prayer because um, that's just the one I know really well, and I grew up with this translation primarily. People ask me all the time, what translation should I read? And I always tell them the same answer, whichever one you'll read. So buy a Bible, buy a Bible use a translation that you'll actually read. Uh, there's pluses and benefits to all types of things with translations. Uh, but this is the one I grew up with. Could we read this together in a posture of prayer today? Ready, begin. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In the beginning of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 1, there is the scene that's unfolding as Jesus has just, he's resurrected and now he's with them and they go to the ascension. And one of the primary concerns for the disciples, even while Jesus was alive, was this, when are you going to set up your kingdom? Remember when they, when they realized that Jesus is the Messiah, right? The Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one, the one they had waited for. Well, for generations they had waited for this person because this person was going to save them from their sins, but also set up a new kingdom. And so it's interesting if you read through the Gospels, primarily the book of Matthew, and you just kind of pay attention to any reference to king or kingdoms and the conversations between the disciples and Jesus, it's interesting to hear them talk about the kingdom because they're really looking forward to getting rid of Rome. They really don't want to be under Rome's occupation anymore. They are fed up with this occupation. They're fed up having them in their homeland. They just really want to get rid of the government. Some of you might sympathize with that. <laughs> they have different conversations and they ask Jesus, when are you going to set up your kingdom? One of the interesting things is when they start saying, well, in the kingdom, who, uh, who, uh, who's, can, can I, I just, I kind of want to be in power in the kingdom, Lord. Like, you know, we're doing this together now, but in the kingdom, can I also be in power with you? It would be really cool. Can you think they were under Rome's occupation for so long. They were just really looking forward to leverage some power against Rome, perhaps. The kingdom was such a, a, a motivating factor for these disciples because for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they had been under one type of oppression or another. Way back when in the Old Testament, 
under Egypt. Way back when, when they were looking for their promised land. Way back when, when they were exiled into captivity by the Babylonians. Way back when, as soon as the present for them, with Rome. So the kingdom became this really important idea for them. When are you going to set up the kingdom? Jesus would say, um, well, not yet, but soon. I think it's interesting because embedded in Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, this whole, this prayer was gifted to the disciple because they came to Jesus and by my reading of Scripture, the only time they asked him to teach them something is when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, pray like this. I want you to look at these words again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next phrase? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And then look at the next phrase. On earth as it is in heaven. So the story of Acts is the expanding of the kingdom through a spirit-empowered church despite internal obstacles and external opposition. And here embedded in the Lord's Prayer is this idea that we're going to pray for the kingdom of God to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Acts tells us how God directs the expansion of his kingdom, and we get to live out the gospel in such a way where the kingdom of God here expands on earth as it is in heaven. So when we follow Jesus passionately, when we follow him wholeheartedly, when we start removing some of the distractions and the temptations, when we recognize it's a team sport, when we start doing it together and say, oh my goodness, I get to be a part of this. This is way bigger than Sunday mornings. Man, I get to live this out at work. I get to live this out in my relationships. It'll cost you something. It'll cost you some things. But man, we get to do this together and it's a team sport. We're going to start removing distractions. We're going to start removing temptations. We're going to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. The result of that type of living in a church is the kingdom of God expands. More people are welcomed into the kingdom of God. Our influence ends up impacting society and our faith puts on work shoes, and all of a sudden, we don't just travel to church in our faith. Now we start living out our faith, and society is impacted. And pretty soon, they're holding meetings and saying, my goodness, because they're following so Jesus so quickly, we're going to have to shut down business. Can I tell you a prayer of mine that I pray for? Pretty silently. Every time I travel north on the 5 freeway, I pray that the movement of God is so strong in our community that the porn shop north of town closes because there's no appetite for that crap. You know what I pray for? Um, when I think about the shackles of addiction in our community, I just pray that no one ever has to call my office and say, when's a meeting? Because they already know because People are being delivered from addiction regularly. Amen. Not because we've set up programs and not because we're, we're more active on, on different measures, but because we simply just follow Jesus more passionately. 
And the more we turn our eyes upon Jesus, the things of this earth, they grow strangely dim. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, it's our prayer that our faith would impact society. And yet I'm struck with this notion that if it's going to impact society, it has to impact us first. So I pray that we wouldn't go through the motions. It would not be a Sunday ideal for us, but that we would live out our faith just passionately, wholeheartedly. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.